Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. On today's episode, we've brought together a panel of first responder wives. While these women are all unique, as are their experiences, they do have a few things in common. The obvious being that they married a first responder. The unfortunate being that they are all suicide loss survivors. Ladies, first of all, uh, we are very sincerely sorry for the losses that you all have had to endure. Um, And we truly appreciate your agreeing to share your stories with us and with our listeners. With the shared hope that this discussion and others like it might contribute to change and save lives that otherwise may have been lost. We want to hear all about your loved ones as they lived. We'd like to try to understand their struggle and what role stigma may have played in their lives. But first, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Whoever would like to go first. Hi, my name is Sharana Calderon. Um, My husband was Deputy Omero Omar um, Calderon. He was an 18-year veteran with the Dallas County Sheriff's Department. He worked in um, warrant section his whole, basically for 10 years he worked in the warrants and execution um, department. He and I, we met at the Sheriff's Department in 2000. Um, and it was pretty much, he was this charismatic guy, um, funny, low-key, um, very hard worker, type A personalities, typical with um, law enforcement, but I think he's a little extreme, very competitive. Um, but he was the love of my life, still is. Mm. Thank you for sharing, Sharonda. Anyone else want to chime in? I'm Karen um, Rusciano. My husband was Mike Rusciano. He was a DEA supervisor and a Desert Storm veteran. Um, and we were living in, uh, I live in Massachusetts right now. And we have two daughters, 22 and 19. And he uh, loved the military. I can't say that he loved law enforcement. It was just something he fell into. But um, he was uh, the country attaché in Moscow, Russia. Loved that. And that was probably the highlight of his career doing that. Thank you, Karen. Katie? Yeah, so I'm Katie Baroud. Um, I was married to my husband, Lieutenant James Baroud. He was on the Brockton Police Department for um, 25 years. Transferred in. He was in a small town before when we first got married, and he transferred in after five years into his career because he felt that um, he get a little more action and experience over in a bigger city. Uh, we're in Massachusetts also, just south of Boston, so it was 
much different than the small town he came from, and he saw a lot of um, a lot of action right away. And um, we have two children together: uh, son George, who's fifteen; he'll be fifteen next week, and our daughter Joanna's twelve. So, thank you for sharing. Um, we we should have. I just want to announce Amanda, just in case she she um, chimes in a little bit. But we also have a, another member of the panel, uh, Amanda. Um, who also lost her husband. Um, so if she comes on a little bit later and we have another voice coming in, um, you won't need to start to go back and explain it um, later on. But I'm so grateful, and myself and Jay are so grateful to have you all here um, speaking with us and letting our listeners know about um, your loved one, how they lived, and also what they did for their job um, and their experience with it and all of that stuff that we're, we're going to get in and, and chat about. Um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to get in and, and facilitate a conversation a little bit. But I want to go back a little bit. I want our listeners to, to hear um, about your loved one. Share with us um, a little bit about what you would want us to know, what you'd want us to know about them, how they lived, what were you like, how you met. Um, and how you grew as a family. If you want, if someone wants to chime in and start off on that, I would love to hear about your loved ones. Don't be we shy. Actually met in our, uh, we oh. actually met in our church. So in church, we we met in church. Yeah, we were both we were, we were both Lebanese, which is pretty um, tight knit community. It's not like a ton of Lebanese people around, I guess, and you kind of all know each other. Yeah, and so. Jim had grown up in Boston and he went to the church in Boston and I grew up down here in Brockton and I went to that church. So you think, you know, all the families in the area and suddenly uh, this new guy came into church and he started sitting behind us and I would sit in between my mom and my grandmother. So my grandmother um, kept telling me that she thought he liked me and I kept telling her that she was crazy. Like, don't say that. He doesn't like me. I don't know this guy. And, you know, one day, so I went out to the parking lot to uh, start the car early and kind of cool it off for her because she was, you know, old. Um, And Jim came walking out and he started up a conversation and, um, yeah, the rest was history. Mm. So we, he took me out to the North End and we had a nice dinner on our first date. And, yeah, just... It grew from there, and we had a nice little house together, and I moved into his house. He had bought a house. Like, ironically, he was living one street over from where I was living in the same city. Oh, you're kidding me. Nope. I used to jog by his house. He would jog by my house. We never knew each other. And then I moved into his house when we got married, and we had our first child there. And then um, the second child came along, and we moved one town over here to, you know, just a couple miles away from my parents and... Yeah, it was it was great. It's kind of a funny story. How long were you dating before you got married? Two years. Two years? Wow. Two years, yeah. So that yeah. mysterious guy was a fast mover. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Lebanese people, I, yeah. I was an old spinster at 24. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that whole, whole different culture type of thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. 
she's like, get married. Come on, you're you're old enough. Get married. Start giving me grandkids. Oh my <laughs> goodness, that is so funny. I love I yeah. love hearing all of this. I mean, this is something about right. We we get to hear about our loved ones, right? Our connection with each other, um, or the losses, but not all the time we get to hear about this type of stuff and it's wonderful yeah. to be able to hear all of that and to share all of that and I can already tell you're loosening up Katie so it's good um Sharonda I could see you smile when when Katie was sharing were you relating with that like or listening to to some of her conversation yes I love to hear yeah I, the life part of it because it they they lived yes and we're we're constantly we we know that they're gone we and People are afraid to talk about the the past, but the past is still so very much so present to us. So I enjoy hearing it. Yeah. And and hearing her joy. Yes, absolutely. I mean the smile on her face, right? Um, was saying it all, like bring him back bring back to the to the church. You were back in the church there for a few minutes, you know what I mean? For the for those seconds. Karen is also has a big, big smile on her face. Are you are you are you relating with Katie with what she's saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Does anyone else want to share with us a little bit about their loved one? Uh, Mike and I met through, it was kind of like, I guess, a precursor to online dating. It was like an introduction uh, service. And we both lived in New Jersey at the time. We were both originally from New Jersey, but we lived about an hour apart from each other. And we each had gotten this little thing in the mail, you know, like, I'll call this person. This person seems to be a good match for you. And I saw his address and I thought, I would I want to meet up with this guy who lives, you know, an hour and a half away. And I think he thought the same thing. And so he <laughs> called me and we spoke on the phone and that went really well. And it was December and I'm a teacher, but I was also working um, at a mall uh, and so it was like, you know, Christmas season and he asked, you know, like about going out and I said, you know, I'm really busy, you know, and he was like, oh, <laughs> look at you. And then I come in and I was thinking, you know, I don't want to make myself so readily available, you know, let him think that I have stuff going on. <laughs> so we kept talking on the phone and that continued to go well. So we had set up to have our first date the day after Christmas which was going to be fairly busy at the mall because, you know, everybody exchanging or returning things. And I thought, well, yeah. this guy's, you know, a loser. At least I've got work, you know, that I can <laughs> say that I need to go to. I'm sorry, i got to go to work. And so he called me on the day before on Christmas, and we were going to go into New York City and go all around. And he called me, oh, that he had this horrible cold. And, you know, could he just meet me at the mall and maybe we could go to the movies? Okay, you know, sure, that's where I'm going to be working, but, you know, okay. <laughs> and he met me, and that was it. I mean, we were engaged nine months later and married nine months after that. And, you know, he was just funny and just everything I think, you know, I had been looking for. We were both, uh, like, 31 at the time, so... Yeah. All my friends had already gotten married, and so you were uh, ready. I never felt any pressure. I just was kind of like, you know, no, when you know, you know, and you know, you that know, was it. absolutely. And how long were you married? How long are you married? We were married twenty-two years. Twenty-two years. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I love I love hearing all of this th- stuff. I'm I'm like sitting here like going ah. 
I love all this. So you got over the loser in, in you know, first first. Yeah, I mean, we we went to the movie, we went to dinner, we went to the movies. And I thought, shoot, I don't want to go into work. Like, I'd rather spend time with this guy. But ah, oh, yeah. I love that, love that, and the rest is history. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. Sharonda, you want to share? Uh, ironically, with Omar and I, um, we, I guess, officially met um, at the sheriff's department. But I think a few years after we were dating, we were going through my, um, it wasn't a yearbook, uh, a photo album. And there was a picture of me in there. And in the background, you could actually see what looked like him in the background. Um, I went to um, like one of those magnet schools and some of the guys, and it quite naturally was more females at this school than guys. So guys from the other high schools would come over to try to pick up some of the girls, ladies. At yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so um, I remember I was waiting on um, like, a, like the, the city bus and he was on like one other side, like on another bus. And he was like talking to me from there. And he was like, Hey, you're going to give me your number. And I was like, yeah, I'll give you my number. I was just playing. I wasn't going to actually give him my number. I was like, yeah, you can come on because he was on the, on the opposite side on the bus and I was like yeah come back come back and so the bus I guess it went maybe like a mile up the street so he said he got off the bus he said and he came back and I was gone but when we were looking at the picture he said I remember this you um, kidding me he said I was he said he said I was there he said and I said wait a minute he said it was some girl there he said you know because he said um a sister, because he, you know, with him being, you know, he said he said it was some. He said it was a hot little sister there that was going that was going to try to give me to play. I was like, really? And he said at the bus stop, <laughs> and I said that was me. Oh and my god! Like, oh my god! <laughs> wow! I said I remember that. I said you were on the bus, and I said I knew that my bus was coming, so I knew I wasn't going to see you. He said, but I came back. He said you you were already gone. Wow! Yeah. Now. Um, I love years it. Years later, like about five years later, we met again. You you met again, but you all, you then met at the at the department. What did you do at the sheriff's department? Well, in the beginning, we actually both worked in corrections, so we actually came in oh. um, because you have to start in corrections there before you can move on. Um, yeah, he became deputy, and I left to go to the city of Dallas, and that's where we met. And I remember the first day there, as they call it, like the new boots, and you know anyone that works in law enforcement they know it. it's a a female that starts every male is going to come just to see you know who she is Who's, and you know check this yeah, one out that, who's this one yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and ironically he was one of those that did and wow. i remember he was so um gq they used to make fun of him they used to call him rico suave and i remember him whispering and he he used to hate when i wouldn't make fun of him he whispered gorgeous <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that was his pickup line. Yeah, and it was hilarious to me. And many years after, I would make fun of him. He's like, "Don't tell," and I would tell the kids what he said. And he was like, "That's <laughs> not true. I didn't say that. I didn't do that." <laughs> yeah, and he was actually supposed to switch shifts when I started, but he pulled out his letter um, to go to day shift so that he could stay on third watch, which was, I believe, from one to ten. So he had worked there already a year and had to wait a year before he could move to day shift. Yeah. But he said that week he pulled his letter out so that he could stay on that shift because he said he wasn't going to miss the opportunity. And You're kidding me right away. <laughs> so right away. So how long, how long were you working together like at the department before he like 
did he ask you out on a date? Like before he, before you like he connected? Asking, he was asking me on a date the first year, but I wouldn't do it because I felt, no, I was always taught, you don't ever get your uh, money where you get your honey. Oh, what is it? Yeah, don't ever get your honey where you get your money. That's what it is. That's what my grandfather said. Never get your money where you get your Your grandfather like that. said that. Yeah. So Well, you didn't listen. I was, like, I was totally against it, and he didn't care, and he just kept trying. So it was about a year. and um, Before you caved in. Together. Yeah, pretty much caved in. He said he was putting in, he was investing. So he said he was dealing with the rejection because he was investing. <laughs> oh, so he he knew all along. Yeah, absolutely. But he I knew all. I actually I fell in love with him. Actually, if it sounds crazy, but and I think back on actually when I first met him, that that it was just something there. So he was he was actually the reason why I even stayed there. So yeah, at the department. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. And how long were you married? We were together. We were married a little over eight years, but we were together for 18, well, 17 years, really. Wow. So. Yeah. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun in those years. A lot. Of, a yeah, lot. Absolutely. It sounds like it from all of you. All of you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I have this really, really good feeling. I don't know about you, Jay. Yeah, I'm feeling the same way. So I just want to get in and and ask you about your work, the the husbands, your husband's work, like what they did. Um, share with us about what they did on the job um, as a police officer. Um, and then, you know, what did you notice, like, over the years? Or did you notice over the years that there was some, like, change? Um in them did you notice or did they notice or was there any behavioral changes um going over the years what they what they saw what they heard or what they saw on the job over the years if you want to start to share that with us um if you want to chime in well my husband he worked in the warrants and execution um department for 10 years so he worked in he was in corrections for eight um and he worked in um the rest of his 10 years um, until he left and um, warrants. There were things that he saw. And I think uh, two years when I started really noticing the struggle was when we had our shooting here in Dallas um, in 2016. That's when, that's when I actually saw the more emotional side of him. So if there was any word that I could actually pinpoint it, it would have been at that time. Because yeah. that's the time that we actually started struggling as a, a unit, as a family unit. We actually started struggling bumping heads um and right along with just even him being a man there were things that i i noticed even in him then like with his sister i feel like his sister testosterone levels were low because libido and that was not him we're talking about a latino guy here you know that uh, that that was just that's just who he felt uh, that little machismo part and things were struggling there and quite naturally i'm online and i'm you fit all of this you need to go to the doctor and get your testosterone levels checked because I think this is what it is. And sure enough, they were very low. And, you know, he was able to, you know, get the, the medication for, you know, it was testosterone to, to help boost them up. And somehow I think they kind of, it was a good thing, but it actually, I think, added to it, um, to struggles even more. Mm-hmm. 
And I've been learning after that, that that possibly happens, you know. Yeah. So what did you notice like in, in 2016? I know that like in corrections and what, what else was it? Correct or, um, yeah, in corrections and investigate. He in was, um, investigations. The warrant, yeah, warrants. Warrants. Yeah, and warrants. Share yeah, and with us a little bit of detail about what that is. Uh, for our listeners who who don't know what that is, um, warrants basically they're the ones that go out and find the guys. So there's a, a warrant, you know, a writ that's put out. They actually go and um, look for the people, arrest them, and bring them in. So they're the ones that's crawling under the houses and checking the attics and um, out looking for them. So that's a lot of of. You know, we've interviewed uh, some police officers, right, um, who have gone out and looked serving warrants and came across, you know, a lot of danger too, right? Being out there, like, crawling underneath the houses, right, searching for these, especially if the suspect is, um, or whoever they're serving, takes off and they have to to pursue, right, and, and get them. What did you notice then in 2016 um, in Omar? that happened with a shooting um, that you notice a difference in him? Well, he was there when it happened. So he um, was there. Okay. Yeah. He was there. He was actually across, um, I guess the parking lot from it. So they heard he was actually on the phone with me when he and his partner heard the shots and they were just joking around. He said, you know, are those gunshots? And he was like, I'm going to call you back. And then after that, I see what's going on in the news and he's not answering. So I'm, kind of freaking out because he just said are those gunshots and he was actually across maybe a parking lot or two across from where it actually happened yeah oh my god that night when he came home as with anything you see things he was um a little more he was hugging his family more um he actually our baby boy he wouldn't leave him that night he actually slept in the bed with him you know and you know everything was normal it was just basically just a part of life yeah being in law enforcement yeah but with us, that's when i could actually see he was he was a little more distant yeah but, Sound- he, but he was trying so hard i could actually see that he wasn't um that he was trying his best so he, he didn't want to be distant but it was one of those things where he couldn't help it yeah and with me not understanding i would i would i felt um rejected because I felt, you know, hey, this he he doesn't feel this way about me and questioning do you want to leave the relationship? Yeah. Both of us have strong personalities. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those, if you don't want to be here, I love you enough to let you go. And that wasn't the case, but he didn't know how to say what was going on with him. Yeah. Not until later. Not until the following year. Yeah. So it sounds like that initial time after, you know, after the shooting, um, you know, the panic, obviously, that you were experiencing being on the phone with them and the last thing you heard them saying was with those shots and and then him coming home and, you know, spending time with the kids, right, the baby, and sleeping in the bed with the baby. It was sort of like wanting to, appreciating. It, f- it feels like that he was appreciating being able to come home and hug his family at that, at that particular time. But then you notice things started, behavioral changes starting to progress through it. Um, and we can go back into that. I want to sort of let you process just what we're after hearing, right, a little bit. Does anyone else want to chime in there? Um, Karen or Katie, does anyone want to chime sure. in? Like, 
what your husband um, did and did he share he, with you guys like what what he saw on the job or did you know his behaviors changes um when i met mike he was um already a desert storm vet and he was in just local law enforcement and kind of fell into it when he came back from desert storm didn't really know you know what he wanted to do and you know just seemed like law enforcement was a natural fit he always said you know i never grew up saying i want to be a cop but yeah that's what he kind of fell into but loved the military always stayed in the reserves um eventually he became a federal agent with the dea and we were living in new jersey and he kept saying you know i want to go overseas i want to you know, I'm just a glorified New Jersey cop here. I want to go over a seat. And every time he would bring it up, I would shoot it down and say, you know, why, why do we need to go overseas? You know, our families are all here. What? And so he came home one day and he had learned Russian in the military. And he said, I did something and you're probably going to be a little upset, but there's so little chance of it happening. Don't even bother yourself stressing. He goes, but I put in to go to Moscow. And I was like, what? And he was like, you know, I speak Russian. We have overseas offices, you know, and I want to go overseas. And lo and behold, we got it and took the two girls. They were 8 and 12 at the time, lived in Moscow, Russia for five years. And wow. it was the best experience we could have ever had. Um, he was non-enforcement when we were over there. He was a country attache, and they would get a call from uh, sources or whatever, you know, like, hey, a plane might be coming in with drugs to Russia, and his job was just to tell the Russians, you know, you guys want to go after it? We'll help you out. We can't arrest anybody. We can't, you know, have weapons, but we'll just let you know the information. And all that stress of going out and carrying a gun wasn't there, and it was awesome. And so our five years ended, we came back to the States and he was back in enforcement as a supervisor by then and just not happy being back in enforcement. And so he had stayed with the military was, uh, like I said, in the reserves and our daughters were getting older and he was like, you know what, I'm going to activate for a year because that'll give us more for the girls for the GI bill and I'll do a year of activation. And then we'll buy it back towards retirement. So he went down to the D.C. area. And not long after he was there, COVID hit. So it was like we couldn't go down and visit him oh. as much as we would have liked to. He couldn't come back. He was on a 250-mile uh, radius that, you know, he needed special permission if he was going to leave that 250 miles up in Massachusetts, we were definitely farther than that. So it was just these long separations started. And I think that's when the isolation um, and the separation just started to get to him. And the year ended and he came back to Massachusetts. So it was like, okay, he's home. Things are good. And he wasn't home two months when they said, okay, you need to go down and do your headquarters time. And that was kind of expected. Everybody, when they reached the supervisor level, at some point, you were to do headquarters time, which was going to be back down in D.C. And he had two years left till he was going to retire. And he was like, you know, it's kind of silly for me to go back down to D.C. for a year and I'm going to retire then in a year. You know, maybe I'll 
beyond the point of being mandated to go down and was told, no, your numbers are up. You need to go back down. So went back down again, you know, needed to find him an apartment down there in the DC area, which was expensive. Um, that started to stress him out that we were spending all this money to having to have him down there. He was coming home whenever he could, but driving eight hours, you know, he would work all day Friday, drive home, get home, you know, late Friday night, early Saturday morning, leave Sunday afternoon. Oh, wow. Started to take a toll. And he always had like uh, heart palpitations when he would get anxious and feel anxiety. And it was seeming like he was having them more and more. And when he came home in October, which were kind of like two months before he passed away, I said, you know, why don't we get this checked out? Let's go to the emergency room. You know, even if it means you can't go back down there, you know, this is, and I knew, you know, he was, the depression was increasing and, and whatnot. And they, um, didn't want to really put him on any medication for it. You know, of course, Mike played it down. You know, it's not not as bad as you think. And I said, you know, maybe if they could stop the, the palpitations, that would stop your anxiety. He didn't want medication. Um, he talked, put in three different memos to get transferred back. He was told no. He went to supervisors, told them how depressed he was down there, you know, cried in their office and they said, Oh, you know, maybe you should just go out and drink more. You know, uh, they said, Oh, your eyes are red. We just thought you were smoking weed. And he's like, no, you know, like I miss my family. I don't want to be down here. And it's just how it ended. Did he talk about all of that stuff? Like, um, he did. Like that he was depressed he did. and stuff? You know, he was, he was so anxious. You know, like people, he talked to a supervisor at the DEA, one of his friends that uh, had retired. And his advice to him was, don't tell a soul. Don't take your gun and badge. You know, just literally like man up. You know, you know it's only for X amount of time. You know, and you'll come back and you'll retire and you'll be done and I'll all be behind you. I can hear so. Jay saying, chiming in here. Do you want to chime in, Jay? Well, um, I'm just thinking about how often we've heard that, right? The the understandable uh, concern and, and how supervisors and coworkers might, might give that advice for reasons that um, are culturally understandable but not very helpful, and and certainly mm-hmm. one of the biggest contributing factors to to the stigma. Um, so, it's uh, I guess I'm just relating w- with their experiences as we've heard it uh, so many times Some, yeah. be- before, and um, I really hope to see that that change one day. I think that that police officers should feel comfortable with. It. They live a life of of trauma, right? That they actively engage mm-hmm. or are involved with 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 traumatic uh, environments and, and uh, it's their duty to sort those things out. And that takes a tremendous toll. We, we know that, right? So it should be reasonable without um, the threat or concern of losing your, your ability to carry a, a firearm, uh, your livelihood, your, in a sense, a, a portion of your identity, which is something else that we've, we've discussed on the show. Help um, should, should be available. I think that we're, we're at a point 
uh, in time where we have a cultural understanding of trauma to, to a degree that it's appropriate to, to see some change. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what I was thinking. Mm. I, Sharonda, I saw you nodding a couple of times, even when Karen was talking and when Jay was speaking. Do you want to chime in there? Like, what were you relating with with that? It sounded like, looked like you were relating. Yes, it is. It's um, it's cultural, and and they're doing this out of, I don't want to say the word ignorance, but I guess I'll put it out of coping. Mm. You know, everything is, everything is coping um, in law enforcement, and you cope until you can't. And that's, and you, you have to have those safeguards there. And we need cultural, even with, even if they have made it to the point to where I want to get the help and I need to get the help, you need to have culturally competent therapists and, and people around that even understand because mm-hmm. you can actually be placed in as our, my situation, we found a therapist and it made things worse for him mm-hmm. because they weren't culturally competent. Mm-hmm. And I regret even making him even go to see this guy, but I don't even, I don't blame the therapist. He only could um, help him within his scope of expertise, but you have to have culturally competent therapists or clinicians available, um, resources available when they make it to the point of accepting the help and being okay because mm-hmm. you're still going yeah. through the stigma even with therapists trying to find that's still a stigma there yes it's yeah so true yeah absolutely i mean um we've talked about it so many times um with interviews with first responders sharing with us that he, they thought they could fix it themselves mm-hmm. um yeah I on mean, their own. when mike was home the the one of the times and I said, you know, like, let's, let's get you to talk somebody, you know, I'll come with you. And he was so afraid that just filling out the forms that was going to be submitted and, you know, like to the health insurance and they're going to see that I'm seeing somebody. And we went in and we spoke with a woman and she was like, give me $20 and I'm not going to put it, you know, on any paperwork. This is just us, you know, but I think by that point, you know, he could probably use that a while back. You know, it was almost like too little, too late. Wow. I think it's one of these things with with us. It's and within with that part of trauma and post traumatic stress. It's you can't. You have to do the work yourself, but you can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of those things. It's like a double edged sword. <laughs> you, you know, it's hard work, but you have to do it. Mm-hmm. But you can't do it alone. So you need the resources. You need the people. You need the support. And those people have to understand too. Yes. Because mm-hmm. and our, and loved ones, we we can only move out of the knowledge that we have. So that's why so many of us have this regret afterwards and this guilt afterwards. But we just need to be mindful that. We we love them within the confines of just our love. We didn't know anything else, you know. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, you know, you can see everything, and hindsight will kill you. Even friends of, you know, because family is blood and blue. So when I say family, it's it's all those connections. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's hard. Yeah, Katie, do you want to chime in there? Uh, yeah, and 
I know for Jim, he knew he wanted to be a police officer since he was a little boy. He grew up in the Hyde Park section of Boston and right next to the Boston Police Department. And he would watch the cruisers come in and out, all the calls. So he knew from the time he was walking that that's what he wanted to do. So he, he kind of, he felt a calling to it. So he went into the Coast Guard. He served uh, for five years, came out, took the test. And like I said, when when I met him, he was um, working in a small town, um, very low crime, like just, I think he felt a little unsatisfied by what he kind of got himself into. He said, especially in the wintertime, he was working the overnight, so midnight to 8 a.m. And he said there were nights that he would come in, he'd take the keys off the uh rack to get his cruiser and he'd go out for eight hours and he'd come back and hang his keys up and he hadn't responded to a single call all night long uh, so the, yeah. he was just looking for a little bit more experience a little more um you know what he was called to do yeah so yeah. at that point we had i don't know if we were in, i think we were engaged to be married at the time and he decided to transfer over to the city um next to that town which was a very large city very um you know, busy and kind of short-staffed for the population. I think they probably maybe needed some more police officers. So they were hiring. Um, so we talked about it as a couple and decided that it would be a good opportunity, not only for the experience, but more opportunity to advance. I know he was uh, in patrol and he kind of wanted to work his way up. So he did. And I we were laughing because I worked across the street in that city, I worked across the street from the police department and I was out uh, on my coffee break with my coworkers on his very first day in the transfer. And I look over and there he is wrestling someone into a pair of handcuffs like two hours into his first shift. <laughs> he, he was probably <laughs> saying, finally, yeah, <laughs> finally, I get to do this. Yes, <laughs> he was He was so happy that he was actually like, he felt like he was making a difference. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, as the years went on, that yeah. became very... Uh, it became a very heavy burden for him to carry mm. because though like it wasn't just he was in patrol, he did work his way up uh, to lieutenant, but he went to you know, no one calls the police um, with good news. Everyone's calling because they need help, and it's usually like a lot of times it's really bad stuff. So he mm. saw terrible calls. He went to terrible things, and you can can't help but relate to your own family. So. He went to, I mean, I, I, it makes me really sad after the fact, knowing that he carried all this. I mean, you know, you know, as uh, just a, a normal human being, a reasonable human being, you know, that these first responders see awful things and, you know, a little bit closer as a spouse or a parent or a sibling, you can, kind you know, what makes them tick and, you know, but I didn't know, I guess, the extent of what he was carrying with him because I was thinking back to just some of the major calls that he was dealing with. And of course he related it back to us. Like he went to awful things. He saw kids that were really hurt and he saw parents lose their children in accidents and drownings and fires and mm -hmm. gang violence and the worst of the worst of the worst. And I think it's not one thing. It was just a million things that kind of compounded and compounded and I definitely saw that you know like that guy that I first married that happy 
life of the party guy kind of withdrew and he was more pessimistic and he was agitated a lot at the end and he was kind of hard to get along with a lot of times to, you know, and, you know, we were struggling too. It was hard. He was, he just, he saw the worst and of course he did. And like, I feel you're right. There's like feeling of guilt after the fact because I said, Oh, maybe I could have been a little more patient in the moment, understanding where he was coming from when he snapped at me or he snapped at the children or he's looking at something from a completely different lens than I had. And even though we were the closest to him, it was somewhat hard to relate to because it wasn't me that had to put the uniform on and go and see that and then come home. And he didn't want to burden me with that. So same thing. He didn't want to talk to anyone me, a therapist, anyone. So he carried a lot of that around with him. And a couple of times that it did manifest out and it was eye-opening for me about, you know, some, he spent like the last moments of people's lives on calls that he went to. And I remember one accident scene and he got mad at me for not asking about it and it was kind of a fine line because you wanted to ask about it you wanted to let them know that they're you're there for them but you also didn't want to push them to talk about something they didn't want to talk about Mm -hmm. so it was hard for all of us so i definitely saw that you know the the mood changes and the withdrawing and pessimistic like he always thought the worst. like if you he heard of a situation he always thought the worst possible outcome off the right you know right out of the gate yeah so it was it was definitely a change in his his whole personality and like looking back on it now you can look back on it and you can see the i guess the progression of it but in the Mm. moment it's hard to see because you're dealing with you know like one snippet in time and at the same time you're trying to do your thing. You, you know, you have a full-time job too, and you've got to get the kids here and you've got to help with homework and run the house and support them when they're, you know, getting forced for a double shift. And there's just no, I guess like escape from it. He carried Mm -hmm. it around with him all the time. And it eventually built up to the point where he like Tronda said, you just, you cope until you can't cope. And then it was, I see. Definitely a shock for I me. I didn't think that, you know, I was kind of blindsided, not thinking that it was possible. And then that, that hurt to yeah. think about how hurt he was. Yeah. Mm. He was carrying a heavy load. Absolutely. Like his backpack was full mm-hmm. of those rocks, right? Um, I can hear Jay when you were speaking there. He was breathing a little bit heavy when you when you had said something. So I want him to chime in because I know usually when he does that, he's feeling something from what you were saying. So I want to chime. I want him to chime in. Well, I can relate to a lot of a lot of what I'm hearing uh, from from my own experience with with suffering and with struggle. And when I listen to you talk, it it sounds like um, in in. In the case of of your husband with Jim, it was cumulative. It it was collective. It built up over time, and you were able to see, um, you were able to see those those changes as as a progression. And then um, when Karen and and Sharonda, when you guys were talking about your husbands, um, there were specific incidents or or circumstances with um, with Mike and with Omar that that. Uh, that seem to be main contributing factors. But I guess I'm wondering if, if you guys look back and, and you also see a, a progression as time went on in the job as well, or if you think that 
Um, it was more specific to the to the incidents, the shooting, the the uh, geographical relocation, things like that. Oh, oh no, with Omar, it wasn't. That's the only thing that I could pinpoint down to where I can say we really started struggling the most was after that. Okay. But I've seen um, this this guy. It actually started, as they say, behind a concrete wall working in corrections. There were things there that his mood and things started changing then, even before he transitioned into um, warrants. So it's it's been over time. No one could see it. I could see it. Sometimes I used to tell him I know him better than he knows himself, and even he admitted that. Mm. He's, I would point things out to him, and he wasn't aware that – he was doing those things. And when he did become aware of it toward the end, he had such guilt about it because he felt like I put this, I put the family through this. So that was one of those um, negative self-talks and things that help contribute, you know, when you're that post-traumatic stress and um, all those suicidal ideations start kicking in. It was one of those things that he held on to say, okay, I did this to you, even though it wasn't, I was still around and I was never leaving, but in his mind, he felt like I should. Um, I remember him telling me, you know, you deserve someone better than me. And as mm. long as I'm around, you won't have them. That was, yeah. that was actually one of the last things he said to me. Right. And, but in his mind that, um, so it sounds like he was feeling that he wasn't worthy. Oh yeah. He, he felt that way. One of the, one of those, uh, the, I would say symptoms, characteristics, or traits of it. Yeah, he he felt that way. He uh, he said that I don't deserve my children. He said I don't deserve to even wear this uniform. Mm. That was the little conversation that he gave me as he left out the um, house for work on Tuesday. Yeah, so those are the things that he said. So he 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 felt that he was struggling. He in 2017 he attempted to take his life. Then we were able to get him into. Um, hospital stay for a couple of days and then that's actually he was relieved that the department knew about it he was originally diagnosed with in 2016 um, when i finally got him to go to the doctor he was diagnosed with um, bipolar 2 disorder he was upset with it he didn't like i'm not crazy um so i was able to i said okay well let's just get to a different doctor took him to a different doctor he was diagnosed with major depressive disorder so in his mind he felt well see it's all about money and the only thing it is, I'm just stressed. You know, I'm just tired. I'm just stressed. That's all this is. And, you know, they're just trying to make money. But when he attempted to take his life in 2017, once he was in the hospital, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, um, PTSD. That's what he was diagnosed with. And that was a death sentence for him. He didn't have any idea that you live with this. You, I mean, there's a whole other side of it. It's just relearning how to live, but he didn't have anyone or any other people having these conversations yeah. to let him know that yeah. you're going to be okay. Um, so in 2018, ultimately, you know, he took his life. He um, took his life in the parking lot of the police department. While he was on duty? Um, he was off duty. Matter of fact, he worked a full shift. Because that, not surprised because that's who he was. He 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 didn't take off from work, um, and he was always going to be on time for work. So he finished the shift, and um, when I knew that he was going to take his life, I called the 
when I, I heard him in the garage coming home and when he told me that you um you deserve some you know a man pretty much you know as long as I'm here I I have that guilt because I was like trying to show him tough love but I knew that we couldn't get into the conversation then um so I was gonna wait for him to come home so we could address and talk about everything that he said um but he didn't give me later uh, I went to the garage and he was he had his gear on the ground, which was something he never did, and his service weapons are missing. I called the department. I let them know, hey, he's going to do it this time. I, and I, I need you guys' help. And, you know, because of the stigma, uh, no one wanted to, they didn't want to believe, they just wanted to say, you guys are having problems. And, like, yeah, we are, but this he's going to do it. Um, they did. A, they put out a bolo, which is uh, be on the lookout for him. It was canceled an hour, it was after hour after it was dispatched, but I didn't find this out until after the funeral. Um, I kept calling the department. I kept calling lieutenants. I said, it seems like no one is looking for him. And they were like, yeah, we're looking for him. They, everyone was ordered to tell me um, that they're still looking for him. So he, um, and that was Tuesday, which rolled into, you know, Wednesday. So they found him on Friday and they uh, told me that they found him in the parking lot of the police department behind secured. Yeah. Wow. You know, secure building. Yeah. Wow. And he wow. actually died on Wednesday. And they didn't find him till Friday? Till Friday. <sighs> so when we say stigma, I am such uh, an advocate for mental health and breaking that stigma because it's yeah. that stigma is the reason why my husband bled to death in the parking lot because no one wanted to believe that Cal, you know, is yeah. suffering. Yeah. 